Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Good Grief. My name is Dr. Christine Malone, and in this podcast, we talk about trauma, tragedy, and survival. In each episode, I will interview someone that has gone through grief in some way, and we will discuss the impact it has had on their life. By sharing these stories, we hope that others won't feel alone should they be going through similar situations. Enjoy. this. I said, okay. All right. So we are recording. Um, welcome to my podcast. My guest today is Rosie Bartel. And Rosie has um, a story to tell us about a medical trauma and how she survived that. So Rosie, would you please just tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Rosie Bartel. And I have, first of all, I want to tell you, I'm a widow. I'm a, par- a parent, a grandparent, and an educator. And so um, basically 13 years ago on August 17th of 2009, I thought I was going to have an ordinary knee replacement. Um, this was my fifth joint replacement. So I thought that I knew everything about joint replacements and, and I did, I, you know, I, everything went pretty much as normal. The first two weeks I went home after three days, I went um, back to work after about a week. I, um, went to one physical therapy appointment where the physical therapist looked at me and said, I know what, you know what to do and, and you're already, you're doing it. So don't, you know, call me if you need me. And that was our standing understanding with the physical therapist. And basically up until about two weeks, um, everything seemed to be okay. It was about two or three days before I was supposed to have the staples removed when I decided, saw some oozing around the staples. And so, uh, about six o'clock on a Thursday evening, I went in to have my staples removed. And the um, I said to the doctor, there's been some oozing around the staples. And he said, oh, it's probably irritation from the staples. It'll go away. And so I said, oh, okay, that makes sense to me. And I let him remove the staples and I went on my way. The next day I went to work and it was supposed to be a half day of work because it was summer hours. And and usually I worked on Friday afternoons catching up on paperwork. But that morning, Friday morning, before noon even came around, I had changed the bandages five times. And so I decided that maybe if I went home and put my leg up for the afternoon, that oozing would stop. And so I thought that's what would happen. So come around Saturday morning, I'm now bandages aren't even dealing, dealing with it. So I'm using a bath towel to wrap my leg to work help with the oozing. But I keep hearing in the back of my mind, it'll go away, the oozing will stop. And so I um, think, okay, it's going to go away. Sunday, I'm wrapping my leg in a beach towel and it still is getting worse. And so I'm thinking maybe I should call the doctor, but I'm one of those people that don't call doctors on weekends unless it's absolutely necessary. And so I didn't call him until Monday morning. So the minute his office opened Monday morning, I called him and said, I have, I think the oozing has gotten a lot worse. You may want to have a look at it. And he said, well, come on in at one o'clock this afternoon. So I went in and he said, well, I've got a little window here to change out the hardware. I think something got on the hardware and you've got a little bit of infection in there and we need to get the hardware changed out so that it will heal. So I said, okay. And he said, be it at the hospital at five o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll take you to surgery at seven and everything should be okay. One of the things that happened the next day was usually I was um, almost completely two in recovery. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm a fast recoverer and, a, and, but I don't even remember that day. I don't remember that Monday at all. I don't remember anything after surgery. On Tuesday morning, I wake up and I see this strange doctor at my bedside who I'd never met before. He introduces himself and says he's an infectious disease doctor. Now, he might have said a lot of other things, but the only thing I remember him saying is, lady, you're very sick. You have a MRSA staph infection, and I give you about a 30% chance of surviving. Wow. And I'm like, wait a minute. You don't know me, and you don't know anything about me. And I have survived cancer three times. You know, I am a survivor. And so you're not going to tell me I'm not going to survive. And I hadn't, you know, MRSA didn't mean anything to me other than I had heard people had MRSA, but it didn't mean a lot to me. And so basically I thought that, you know, they changed out the hardware, things are going to heal and things are going to get better. What didn't, I didn't realize was that things weren't going to get better and little by little, um, they kept changing out the hardware. I had 58 surgeries, over 200 hospitalizations. I had over a hundred transfusions, so many transfusions that I now have a rare anemia because of all the different transfusions. I was, um, I had three different amputations at three different times. So first six inches above the knee, then my hip, uh, my hip, because um, when they did the, when they did the first amputation, they, it still wouldn't heal. And so they, they, they kept going back in and cleaning out the tunnels, but they didn't go all the way to the bone. And eventually, I eventually had to change doctors and, and um, the doctor, the orthopedic surgeon I went to said, I'll open it to the bone. And when he opened it to the bone, he found 17 stitches that hadn't dissolved. And now the little bit of femur I had left that had been healthy femur was now infected with MRSA. And so was my hip that was an artificial hip, now I had MRSA. And so eventually I had to have the hip and femur um, removed and then another surgery um, required me to have most of my pelvic, pelvic bone removed. And then I had tissue removed several times because it, um, that pelvic bone that I've left has got MRSA in it. And so they I think that the less tissue I have, the less chance I have of getting an infection. So all of this went on over uh, basically, uh, well, up until today. I mean, I've had, you know, the, you know, in the last year or two, I've had several bouts of infections where I've ended up in the hospital with sepsis and septic shock. I've been in septic shock 14 times. I've been, I've been flighted from my, um, from a 21 bed access hospital that's within five blocks of my home to, uh, to you know, to the hospital where I, um, had the had some of the last surgeries, I you know I've I've been in comas for multiple days. I've been intubated several times. Um, it's just been an ongoing situation, and so um, I, I do um, presentations on septic shock and sepsis because um, I survived sepsis fourteen times, and most people don't survive it once. Right. And so it's one of those things that I've learned. And one of the things that I do all the time is um, tell my story and I tell it over and over because my, from the beginning, I said, I don't want this to happen to anyone else. And the doctor that told me that I would have less than 30% chance of surviving eventually invited me to the table 
to help them figure out why they were having so many MRSA infections with joint replacements. And then when they wanted to present their findings to leadership and wanted to ask for some improvements at the hospital, um, they asked me to share my story first. And um, so that was the first time I shared my story. It was um, about 11 years ago and I've continued sharing my story since then on a regular basis um, for all kinds of things and all kinds of people. Yeah. Wow. That's an, an amazing, amazing story. Um, I, I have also been a victim of medical malpractice that cost the life of my son. So I, I know what a journey that is and how frustrating it can be knowing that something was preventable and it caused such heartache and, and lifelong trauma to you. Um, so I'm, I'm would like to know, you know, if you, you talk about how telling your story, you're hoping it would help other people from having to go through the same thing. Um, do you find that's also part of how you have survived is because you can tell your story and it makes you feel like you're helping others. So it wasn't just this, this senseless, horrible thing. Yeah. I think from the beginning, the reason the, the infectious disease doctor reached out to me to tell my story originally was because he felt like I was handling it differently than other people, okay. you know, that I was handling it. And I would say to him often, you know, we need to figure out why this happened because I don't want this to happen to somebody else. I can't change what happened to me. I can't fix this anywhere, but, you know, I said, but I can change that it doesn't happen to somebody else. So we need to figure this out. And that was why he reached out to me to help to have me tell my story. But I, you know, the more I tell my story and the more I'm involved in telling my story to all kinds of people, um, I do things that people look at me and say, really, you're involved with that? And I'm like, yes, I am. I, I'm involved with facilities. I'm involved with environmental services. I'm involved with IT. I'm involved with all kinds of things that, you know, basically, if you're willing to listen to my story, I can figure out how you might improve what you're doing to make sure my story doesn't happen to somebody else. And so, you know, I do a lot of um, quality improvement work because mainly, you know, it's it was it was quality improvement that had, you know, it's, it has to be changed in order to fix this. And, you know, right now MRSA is on the rise faster than any other health acquired in, infection. So I am, you know, like out there um, telling my story every which way I can, because I believe that there are lots of reasons why it's on the rise. Part of it was because we weren't paying as much attention during COVID. Part of it was because um, we pulled everybody who was the best of the best um, healthcare providers to do work on COVID and we left everybody else stranded with mediocre and mediocre leads to mediocre care and that leads to other traumas. Plus, we also told people to stay away and, and it was hard to get, you know, to, at this point, I still can't see that infectious disease doctor that's become my friend and, you know, he, he'll call me as my friend, but he can't treat me as a patient because he has been pulled away only for COVID. Yeah. I'm thinking about, as you're talking, how many people you've probably already saved from having such horrible things happen to them and how that must make you feel. Um, Cause yeah, that's a pretty, pretty important thing. I know you wrote a book. So tell us about your book. Well, my book is called Rosie's story, a story of faith, hope and survival. 
and basically it talks about my story and and all the different steps I took. It's not a sad story. It's not a it's not a story that's going to make you cry. I don't think. Um, some people say I put it aside till I thought I was would have time to cry about it, and then when I read it, I laughed. You know, because my sense of humor has gotten me through a lot of tough times. And and my kid brother, when he read it, he's an engineer, so and he, and I was even surprised he read it. But he read it and he said. You know, it's interesting. You talk about it, but it's like this happened, and then I did this, and this happened, and then I did this. And when he said, you didn't ever throw anybody under the bus. You never blamed anybody. And I said, well, that's partly what got me started in this was I wasn't blaming. I was just saying, how can we fix this? And I, I firmly believe nobody in healthcare ever sets out to harm somebody, but sometimes bad things happen. And how do we fix those? We look at all the things that happened bad and we try to figure out why did it happen? And that's, you know, and that's what I did from day one was why did this happen? What were some of the things that could have been done better? And I, I tell you, I've learned a lot. I learned a lot about operating rooms and about how things are done in hospitals and the fact that when they have a 65%, um, 65% audit of hand hygiene, they think that's good. And I come from education and, you know, people in education say, wait a minute, that's a failing grade in my book, you know, but yet they, you know, in, in healthcare, if 65% of the people are doing quality hand hygiene, they think they're doing well. And so, you know, I, I just, that, that blows my mind that that hundred percent isn't the goal, you know? And, yeah. and so my, you know, part of me is to convince them that hundred percent has to be the goal. I, yep. yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, not everyone has your spirit and your drive. I, I can tell you that I've worked with a lot of malpractice um, victims in, in my time. And uh, many people do go to the blame and the, the pity rather than making it and taking it to something to that they can be empowered by. So having said that, if you were talking to, and I'm sure you probably have other people who are going through or have gone through something even less serious than yours, let alone as, as serious as yours has been, you know, what advice would you have for them um, to get to the place where you are, where, you know, you're confident and you, you know, you're helping people um, living and you're living a positive life. Well, I, first of all, I'm, I encourage people to tell their story. I, t I encourage them all the time. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a big story. It might be a one day thing that happened to you, but it's, it's, it's a story that we, the healthcare profession needs to hear. It's a story that can change. You know, um, yes, mine is a big story. Other people have small stories, but you know, I have lots of small stories that created this big story. You know, if you've been hospitalized 200 times, you have seen the good, the bad and the ugly. And so I can tell you good stories about, you know, discharge and I can tell you bad stories about discharge. I can tell you, and, and that's the way I feel about all of, you know, and so if you have a horrible discharge um, situation and then you end up with a readmission because they didn't give you the good information on discharge, you know, that's a story. Tell your story. Tell what happened to you on that day when you were being discharged, you know, or or the fact that, you know, maybe you were told you could go home at eight o'clock in the morning and, and, you know, you were there still at eight o'clock at night. You know, those are those are traumatic experiences. And, and those stories need to be told because the only way we're, I always keep saying, I'm going to fix this charge before I die. 
because I believe it's one of the messiest things we have in healthcare. Um, and, and I just believe we don't do it well and we don't do it. We, we have, you know, it's, it's at the patient, all the patient wants to do is go home. And we, and so we wait to do everything at the moment they want to go out that door. And so while they're trying to get out the door, we're trying to tell them everything they should do. And then we're handing them stacks of paper that, you know, I could paper my house with discharge papers. I could wallpaper my house. And, and yet many times those discharge papers didn't even relate to me because they, you know, as an amputee, I, I have different needs and, and have to, I have to use my body in different ways. And so when they're saying, don't use your left arm, for X number of weeks, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I had to come up with a plan of how I'm gonna how I'm gonna transfer myself before I even had this done to me. So I have to use my left arm, but I I figured out how to use it in a positive way without just you know causing harm to to um, whatever was happening at, with that left side. But it it is it is what it is, and I think that you know patient stories have to be told. So, and I know people go through grief in different ways. For my husband, and I lost my husband during COVID, not to COVID, but to cancer. But um, for my husband, he couldn't tell my story for a long time because he was so angry about it. And he was so angry about what happened to me. But eventually he got to the point where he could tell my story. He couldn't tell my story in front of a group, but I, but I, but he would tell my story to people like the bus. We go to a conference and the bus drivers would know my story because my husband had been out talking to the bus drivers or, or um, I did a presentation for Epic, which is the um, electronic records. Um, and, and so he ended up get, dealing with the maintenance guys somehow. And he ended up telling my story to all the maintenance people. And, and so he was always telling my story. And people would say, oh, you're Rosie. I know your story. Your husband told me. You know? And so that's how he eventually healed by telling my story. And, you know, I, when I look, think about how did I, how am I healing from losing him so suddenly within a month of his diagnosis, he was gone. And um, how do I heal? I tell his story a lot. And now I can't tell my story without telling his story because he was my caregiver. And all of a sudden I had to become his caregiver very quickly and, and then survive alone. You're one of the strongest people I have ever met. And I, I can tell you if anyone's going to be able to fix that discharge issue, it, it, I have no doubt it's you. So it's, it's, <laughs> you, you've got more strength than most people I've ever met. So that's pretty impressive. So, um, but as we close up, is there anything else you want to share about, you know, survival or, um, you know, just keeping a positive attitude and, and I don't know anything else that comes to mind for you? I, I think that when, you know, while you're going through something, it's okay to tell your story even to your family, to your friends. Don't keep it locked up. I I have a sister-in-law who lost her sight to a benign tumor that was on her optical nerve, but then got an infection on her brain and lost her sight. And um, she was having seizures. At first, they thought it was epileptic seizures. And then it turned out it was really psychosomatic seizures seizures and part of it was because she hadn't told her story and so um i i have developed a course or like a little workshop for patients that deal with infection um and using graphic comics and so i got her an artist 
and I got her and I got her to meet with the artist to tell her story so the artist could draw her story and submit it. And it's, you know, it's published on um, the Barrow Institute patient and family or community page. But, um, and it was interesting because I knew her story from my brother-in-law and, and because he, he would call me every night on the way home from the hospital and he would talk to me all the way from, you know, for, for an hour because he was so, he didn't understand the medical world and all of a sudden they were thrown into it. And so he and I would talk a lot. So I knew her story that way. And I didn't realize that she had never told me the story from her point of view. But as I listened in the background to her telling the artist the story, I realized that this was going to help her heal. And guess what? She no longer has psychosomatic seizures. Yeah. Telling her story and getting her. And then I've invited her now to a couple times to different presentations to tell her story. Because I just feel that the more she tells her story, the healthier she will be. And it's just, it's so important to tell that story. And um, you're hitting upon the number. I mean, the reason why I do this podcast is to tell the stories because the stories are healing both for the person telling them and for the people hearing them to realize that there is hope and there is survival and there is happiness to move on even. I mean, you know, you, like you said earlier in this interview that you can't change what's happened, um, but you can try to be a change to make it from, keep from happening to somebody else, which is a very uh, amazing um, thing to go through to go through and, and, and make it positive so with that Rosie I want to thank you so much for your time today you have been an absolute pleasure to meet and to interview um, thank you so much for your time and um, have a great rest of your day you too Christine thank you for listening to this episode of Good Grief to hear more about my personal story please pick up a copy of the book The Spider Killer a memoir of trauma, tragedy, and survival. You can find the book on Amazon and Kindle.